The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as temperatures in Kyiv drop below freezing, we discuss Russian war crimes, the EU's new assistant package to Ukraine, and the memory and legacy of Euromaidan, which started just over nine years ago. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of November, day 272. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and Ukrainian writer and, since 2022, war crimes researcher, Victoria Amelina. I started by asking Dom for the major developments over the past 24 hours. Well, hi, David, and good afternoon, everybody. The effect of the recent Russian campaign against national infrastructure in Ukraine is showing some evidence here. So President Zelensky, in his nightly address last night, said that the airstrikes have destroyed half of Ukraine's energy capacity. And um, I mean, we know today that the the average temperature this morning, I think, in Kyiv was uh, was minus four. So President Zelensky said, quote, the systematic damage to our energy system from strikes by the Russian terrorists is so considerable that all our people and businesses should be mindful and redistribute their consumption throughout the day. Try to limit your personal consumption of energy, end of quote. So this is it's millions of Ukrainians now likely to be living with blackouts until the end of March, they're, they're, they're suggesting. Um, so the, the um, Sergei Kovalenko, who's the head of Yasno, provides energy for Kiev, said he's advising people to stock up on uh, warm clothes, blankets, and think about what they're going to do in long periods of, of outage. Um, we, he said it's better to do it now than to be miserable. Um, we've seen from friends of ours in, in Kiev footage of parcels that are being left in in elevators in lifts for uh, for anyone caught in lifts during a during a power strike if they're if they're stuck in a lift there's uh there's food water and uh, sort of basic provisions and blankets and what have you to keep uh, to keep warm in there so it is starting to bite um vladimir kudritsky who's the head of ukraine's national power grid operator said that they'd suffered colossal damage his words colossal or there had been colossal damage to ukraine's power generating facilities but he said calls to evacuate the country is inappropriate he said in, in quote unquote inappropriate i mean not president Zelensky has not called for that um some others have or some others have have su- suggested um that's not um i mean he's not uh, that's not a criticism of Zelensky's address last night but um he's saying that that it's not a uh, an irrecoverable situation. Uh, also today, we've got news from the EU. Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, says the EU is going to send another two and a half billion euro uh, for urgent repairs and reconstruction. And she, in a tweet, she said they're going to plan. EU is going to send eighteen billion euros for 2023 or in 2023, and said we will keep supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. So fairly hefty commitment there from from the EU on the reconstruction side which is you know good we need we need that we need to be thinking about that and obviously there's a pressing need now for 
generators and other and other equipment to, uh, to to provide power right now and to fix the the power supplies and the water supplies that uh, that have been destroyed through Russia's uh, campaign. A couple of other bits and pieces, uh, but I'll just uh, I'll just let you come back on that uh, first, there, David. Thanks very much uh, for that, Dom. We'll come back to you in a minute, uh, Francis. Uh, what would you like to start with? Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. I just wanted to return, first of all, to the story, of course, that I mentioned yesterday at the end of the podcast, which is this manner of uh, Russia's war crimes. Now, we're hearing further developments in this space today, three considerable ones. So I just wanted to focus this on this first. So the first thing to say is the US has said that they could implicate Moscow's top officials in war crimes uh, after Russia has, in their view, systematically murdered, tortured and kidnapped Ukrainians. This is according to the State Department's ambassador for global criminal justice. She said that there are, there's growing evidence that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been accompanied by systematic war crimes committed in every region where Russian forces have been deployed. When we're seeing such systematic acts, including the creation of a vast filter network. It's very hard to imagine how these crimes could be committed without responsibility, responsibility going all the way up the chain of command. She's called the situation, quite a, strikingly this, a new Nuremberg moment. Of course, a reference to the war crimes trials held in the German city at the end of the Second World War of the senior Nazi officials. So a very striking intervention there. The mayor of Melitopol in southeastern Ukraine has revealed details of alleged war crimes in his city. He's talked about uh, kidnapped and tortured residents who were showing support for Ukraine, saying that people were detained, uh, returned malnourished and wounded. I've been informed about a released prisoner who was left with only skin and bones. His skull is fractured and said conditions in Russian captivity are worse than in Auschwitz. So very, very um, striking uh, uh, comparison point there. And he went on in a quotation, when they come to the next cell and break the arms and legs of prisoners so that their streams can be heard throughout the detention centre, you understand that at any moment you can come to your cell and do the same to you. And finally, I just wanted to, in the same theme, talk about the issue of children again. And this is something that Dom flagged with me uh, earlier in the week. So I'm grateful to him. It's just some research that's been conducted by the Institute for the Study of War. Russian sources and proxy officials are rather flagrantly touting the forced adoption of Ukrainian children into Russian families. There are all sorts of Russian uh, bloggers who apparently have began circulating a multi-part documentary series uh, about Ukrainian children from the Donbass who've been adopted into Russian families. Now, this documentary, as I say, is not a, necessarily an official documentary, but it cites a figure of over 150,000 children from the Donbass uh, in 2022 alone being evacuated. Now, it's unclear how they've calculated that figure. I think the Ukrainian officials have estimated this number to be around 6,000 to 8,000. 
Um, so, you know, a vastly, a vast difference in figures here. But the, the, essentially, these, this documentary is sort of gloating, really, about what's been going on and, and flagrantly talking about it. As I say, there's already been quite an interesting uh, remarks made by the Russian Federation Commissioner for Children's Rights. She's talked already about bringing difficult teenagers from various Russian regions and occupied Donetsk and Luhansk to uh, engage in preventative work and military preparation. So again, sort of suggestions there of children being used in the war effort in some way. And just lastly, of course, talking about the forced adoption programs and the deportation of children under the guise of vacation and rehabilitation schemes. So it seems, as I say, that there is much going on in this space, a lot of research that's being done. It's something that we're going to, as I say, draw more attention to in due course. Um, But of course, all of this, it should be underlined, are violations of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Crime and Genocide, and in some articulations would constitute a wider ethnic cleansing effort. So as I say, three interconnected stories there about Russian war crimes, which no doubt will be a core focus focus as winter sets in. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Dom, can I come back to you? Let's link this, I think, to the Makivka incident first, and then I know you've got a few more updates around some some of the other actions uh, on the front lines. Yeah, sure. So Makivka in Luhansk Oblast, so central east of the country. Uh, footage came out a few days ago of, of an incident there that is being touted as, or some people are leaping out the blocks and saying war crime. I mean, it, it takes a lot of investigation to to prove that. And it's taken me quite a few days to actually track down the um, the source film, which is itself edited. So I'm choosing my words carefully, as you can tell. Um, it's not it's not um, bloody or gratuitous. So I think it is safe for everybody to go and have a look at. You're not going to. There's no there's no gory images. Um, but what this film purports to show is a building, a house in Makivka. Um, with um, there's, there's an outbuilding and there's a lot of lot of mess and, and rubble and, and rubbish and you know t- t- the stuff that happens in warfare all over the the um, I think it's the garden of the house. There's a child's toy there, so it's quite clearly not just open ground. It's all to do with this um, with this uh, with this premises, these premises, and the film seems to be from. I, I don't think the angle is from a head mounted camera because of the the, you, the the aspect you see of of other soldiers there so it might be chest mounted it might even be someone holding a mobile phone although i think that's very unlikely because the the situation here is a group of ukrainian soldiers who are uh, receiving russian people who wish no longer to take part in hostilities right again you can tell i'm being very careful with my language because i'm not saying prisoners or people surrendering or anything like this however we do see the film starts you see a, a Ukrainian soldier lying in the prone position, so I lying down on on the ground, um, which I'll come back to later about what he may or may not have been able to see and the um, the angle that he could fire at. And he's he's um, manning a a belt-fed heavy machine gun, bipod mounted, and he is about the pa- the camera pans around. He's around twenty feet away from a from a small outbuilding. Um, out of which we we think, because the, the film starts sort of some way into this into this incident, a number of Russian people have come out, uh, um, hands hands above them, no sign of weapons, clearly seemingly to, wishing to either surrender or you know, 
take no further part in hostilities. And they are brought out, they are called out sort of one at a time, and they're made to let, lie down in a group. And we see about nine uh, servicemen, and the, and the film, like I say, it shows the last one of these uh, of these men come out and lie down. The camera sort of pans around a bit because whoever's holding it is, is, is moving about. Um, there's at least one other serviceman in this courtyard, um, although he seems quite relaxed. No, he's not. He's not got his weapon in the shoulder. He's not aiming it at the at the individuals. He's he's got it in a very, fairly relaxed position. He's he's sort of pointing it at the ground almost. It's he's he's holding it correctly, but it's not in a firing position, which is a bit surprising to me. But if we see, as I say, about nine, I think it's nine people on the ground, and that yeah, we watch the last one come out and lie down, then this process might have gone on for a couple of minutes. So this is clearly not in the heat of battle. We can't hear any other sounds of battle. There's no other sights, no, no, nothing happening, no other weapons, grenades going off, anything like that. So maybe the guy's relaxed, which he shouldn't have done in my in my view. But there we go. So, so the the, the atmosphere is is tense but controlled. And then another figure comes out of the outbuilding from which the previous person we saw, and we are, uh, we can assume the the other seven or eight came from a figure comes out of this building and runs out and 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 has a weapon at the hip and fires you can see you hear it and you can see um you can see expended gas you can see the the smoke from the end of the barrel you can see the the, the typical signs of a of a weapon being fired the camera then goes haywire because whoever's got it is either leaping for the ground or or raising his own weapon or or doing something so we don't we don't see what happens next. We can hear a lot of firing, and that's it. So that's it's a very short clip, and there's also a glitch in it. So towards the end, we see the like I'm assessing the the ninth Russian soldier come from this outbuilding, hands on his head, and lie down. There is then a, a slight a slight blip, slight blip, before which the um, the other individual comes out and starts firing. So it's not a um, it's not an unbroken line of footage. However, this is this has been doing the rounds for a number of days now, and people are suggesting this is. Um, I've I've seen all sorts. I've seen people alleging it's a a, a war crime by the Ukrainian soldiers because they are they are firing upon people who have surrendered. I've seen other people saying no, it's nothing of the sort. I mean, it, it is. I think for us, um, away from the moment and with no access to contemporaneous accounts from the individuals or the full footage or maybe any other footage that was taken nearby and any any other technical means it's it's i would suggest impossible for us to say exactly what happened and even you know if you can be worse than impossible uh to to pronounce judgment and say this was a war crime in any way what i would say though as a former soldier is that this period of military activity when one side or an individual or group wishes no longer to take part in hostilities and make that make that belief known to the other side is 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 one of the the riskiest for both sides one of the riskiest episodes of military activity and it is fraught with danger and it needs to be very 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 tightly controlled um now if you are order combat if you are, if you are no longer a part of hostilities if you've made it clear that you are not a threat and you do not intend to be a threat that you are covered by the geneva convention and you are afforded all the rights um and the protections therein However, at what point that starts is is the bit that that will be debated. So, this individual that came out out of the outbuilding and then fired upon the Ukrainian soldiers, 
the Ukrainian soldiers there are perfectly within their rights to fire back in, in well, not only in self-defense, but in, in war. You could argue that the action is is still going on. Whatever the whatever this attack was, it is still going on if, if both sides are, are are willing to you know trade rounds. So the if if as what is being suggested that the Ukrainian soldier slash soldiers open fire and a lot of the Russian soldiers on the ground were killed. That does not, in and of itself, suggest that they were all to combat. I mean, they have not been searched at this point. We don't know if they have any weapons. We don't know what their status is. We just know that at that point, clearly they are not offering a, an, an immediate threat because they are lying down, they've got their hands behind their heads. However, who knows if they've got any concealed weapons? We, we do not know that. All we know that there is one individual who fires upon uh, the Ukrainian soldiers. Now, I think, and again, I'm, you know, I'm not pronouncing judgment here, but for a for a soldier, and I'm presuming it's the guy on the ground with the heavy machine gun. If he fires back, then the I mean these are not sniper rifles. The the rounds are going to go in what's called a beaten zone, as in a, a grouping, an area, usually hundreds of meters away. But they don't. What I'm saying is they don't all come out of the barrel like a like a laser dot, and each round follows the other one. They are to a very small degree sprayed around a little bit. That's what they're designed to do. It's a, it's a not quite an area weapon that's more that terminology is used more with artillery but it's it's certainly not a like i say it's not a sniper rifle and in the in the close proximity as i say this the guy lying in the prone position lying down is probably you know, 10 12 feet away from the individuals lying down the closest of the individuals lying down and the and the man that comes running out of the outbuilding firing it's probably about a dozen a dozen feet away so you know a heavy machine gun albeit stabilized with a with a bipod it's not it's not the the most stable platform, and these rounds are going to go all over the place. And so, if that has caused if that has caused injuries and fatalities, um, or, or sorry, the, the suggestion is that is what has caused the injuries and fatalities. I think it would be very difficult to say that that this was a deliberate that this was murder. This was a deliberate killing and murder. I mean, clearly there's a threat because there's an individual firing at the Ukrainian soldiers. The status of all the individuals is not known. We don't think they've been searched. It's not not evident that they have, they have been searched and processed at that point. Their hands hands have not been bound, so they've not been they've not been detained properly. And therefore, I think it would be very very difficult um, to suggest that this was a, a deliberate act of of murder. Um, I'm not investigating it. I've not seen anything other than, than what I've seen on social media, and that is open to everybody. You, you can you know, make your own interpretation of it. But if you do so, I would. I would look into what it means to be um, in a, a threat, and what it means to be once you've once you've relinquished your your position as a as a fighting soldier. Okay, because it's it's very important to know what what status you are. And in those first few moments after capture, it is it is fraught with difficulty. I mean, maybe this we don't know if this guy was part of the unit. He probably was if he came from the same building. Um, yeah, other people trying to. Def- or explain this from a, a possible Ukrainian perspective of said, well, you know, it might have all been a plot and this last guy was going to come out blazing. I mean, who who knows? It's an extremely risky manoeuvre if that's what it was. But, you know, if somebody's just got it into his own head that, sod it, I'm not going to surrender, I'm going to go out, I'm going to, I'm going to start firing my weapon, then I, I'm afraid the other people in the immediate vicinity, um, it is almost impossible for the Ukrainian soldiers to to ensure that they are also not caught up in the action that's required to relinquish the threat to their lives from this individual that's just come running out. So it's all quite murky. It's all it's all fraught with um, legal nicety. Um, you and I are not going to come to the bottom of this just by looking at the social media film. However, as I said, it doesn't show gratuitous 
violence. It infers it clearly because we, we, we think we know what happens next, but it doesn't show it. So, you know, if you don't want to believe what I'm saying, then, then go and have a look for yourself. You can find it all on, on social media. But this is not the last we've heard of it. Um, I'm already being bashed on social media for being an, an apologist uh, for Ukrainian war crimes. You know, welcome to the world of mute, you numpties. Um, but yeah, go and make go and make your own minds up. But this is this is a, an extremely difficult part of military activity, and this will happen. It's happened in every war so far. Uh, it will happen again in this one, and it will happen in the future. Well, thanks, Dom, for talking us through that uh, carefully. And I'm sure, as you said, we might have to return to this in the future. And Dom, just very quickly, as I would like to bring in uh, Victoria as soon as possible. You've got two more interesting updates for us: a possible maritime drone strike on the Black Sea Fleet in Russia. Um, and there's been some noises about the Kinburn Peninsula again. And would you would you just talk to those two and then we'll go to Victoria? Yeah, OK, so very quickly, today's UK uh, Defence Intelligence report is say that there's a, there was an attack last night on an oil terminal in Novosisk, which is a port on Russia's uh, Black Sea coast. Um, it is the new, we think it's the new base, or it's certainly a major base of Russia's Black Sea fleet. They moved there, they certainly... We, we assess moved their kilo class submarines there after the October 29th drone maritime drone attack on on Sevastopol. Um, there's a there's an oil terminal very close by. Uh, Novosisk is about 100 k's southeast of the Kirsch Bridge, so it's on the on the on the Russian uh, Black Sea uh, coast. This story was reported in local Russian media, but now some of those are being taken down. Um, so this is uh, UK defence intelligence saying, well, this is you know, they, they sort of mark this attack and saying Russian commander is going to be concerned about threats to all the amphibious landing ship ships based there and other sort of logistic ships because they are extremely vulnerable without escorts and they are assessing. So British defence intelligence assessing that these ships and the port has had a, a much more important role in supplying Russian forces in um, in Ukraine and Crimea since the Kursk Bridge was uh, was damaged. So that's one thing. Link it to so H Sutton. Uh, he's the guy behind the Covert Shores website, or uh, Covert, yeah, well, website and uh, and Twitter feed. Have a look on Twitter. Um, he says, as of last night, did a bit of uh, Ozint open source intelligence. He says that in um, Novosisk at the moment there are three Rapusha class landing ships, one Ivan Gren class landing ship, um, a Grisha three class frigate, two patrol ships slightly smaller than a frigate. We think sort of Corvette size, a massive logistics ship, and at least one kilo class sub. And the kilo class subs are those that are, that are able to fire the caliber cruise missiles into Ukraine. He also said, H. Sutton said that for a few weeks now, basically since the maritime drone attack on um, Sevastopol, um, Russian ships and submarines have had to be escorted by fast boats for their own protection. Um, he's got some satellite imagery from November the 20th that shows this. Now, this is this is really interesting. Okay, So Novosisk Nova, Nova is uh, about well, nearly 700 k's from Odessa. It's much further from Ukraine-held territory than Sevastopol. Up to now, it's been regarded as well out of range of Ukrainian attacks. So, so what? Right. So, if if this is Ukraine, either using these maritime drones. You may remember we we put an image up. Well, basically, H. Sutton was the first one to break this news with, about canoe-sized um, weapons with a with a camera and a GPS, and we think they've got some sort of large warhead in the front. If this is a new threat to the Russian Black Sea Fleet in their new base. Then this is this is really pushing the sea denial aspect of the war in Russia's face, and it, it is it is 
yeah, pushing out sea denial through innovation and with minimal risk to Ukraine if they're using drones. So it reduces the threat to Odessa and the whole of the south coast of Ukraine. It reduces the risk um, to the Black Sea coasts of uh, Hezon Oblast and uh, and to Crimea. And it just, if Ukraine are able to really nullify the threat from the Black Sea fleet, that is a major win. If they also put in the minds of the Black Sea fleet that you're vulnerable anywhere you go because these things can reach you. That is another win. And if they're able to start knocking out oil facilities and, and fuel in what is now the Black Sea fleet's home, then then that is that that's you know, starting to hit their infrastructure as well. I think it's a fascinating area of this of this war and one to watch closely. The other point that you mentioned there, David, about the Kinburn Peninsula, which is is the spit of land um, in um, Hezon Oblast that sort of leads up into the uh, almost south of Mikolaev. Um There are reports that Ukraine have got forces on there and are and are trying to sort of push in from from the west, push into um, Hezon uh, Oblast from the from the west, which is a way of getting over the Dnipro River rather than trying to go over the, the river from Hezon City in some form of kind of opposed river crossing, which would just be horrific and likely not work. They've either got the option of going around the east, around the Zaporizhia area, and that's a long drive down to try and um, reclaim the rest of Hezon Oblast, or come through this Kimburn spit. I mean, it's tiny. It, it's got it's sort of boggy land, sandy land. You can't really, it wouldn't really work for, for large volumes of heavy armor even if you could get them across the water but it might work for uh, electronic warfare teams special forces teams drone operators etc etc because there are there's a number of buildings um, dwellings along the top of the coast there so they could there, there is accommodation there there's there's relative safety there's overhead protection so you cover from view and fire so on and so forth it could it could work as some sort of base for that um, for that type of activity i'm very skeptical partly because it is just a just a spit it's a lump lump of sand and uh, it's a long way from anywhere and i'm especially skeptical because ukraine are pointing us towards it however the reporting is out that you will see it um it's not the last time by any stretch that we will talk about the kimburn peninsula so so do go and have a have a look at that or well, kimburn spit in some some areas it's called that but do go and have a look and have to zoom in closely and have a look at the type of ground it is because anyone that says that there could, there could be a major armored thrust coming from the west i think are um a little bit uh, outlandish in their in their views but uh, yeah okay i'll take a pause there yesterday in his nightly address ukrainian president vladimir zelensky remembered the anniversary of the revolution of dignity monday the 21st of november marked nine years since the start of the maidan uprising when ukrainians marched and protested in kiev following the then pro-russian government's decision not to sign an agreement that would ultimately make the country more aligned with the european union the 2013 demonstrations and deadly clashes resulted in the deaths of at least 108 people, including by police sniper attacks on the crowd gathering in Kiev's Independence Square, and forced the resignation of the then-president, Viktor Yanukovych. In March 2014, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea and areas of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts in Ukraine. This started years of warfare over the territories that came to a head with the start of what we call the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Mr Zelensky said... The freedom and dignity of Ukrainian people is more than a thousand years old. There are many threats to the freedom of our people and the very existence of Ukrainians. Now we have a historic opportunity to defend Ukrainian freedom once and for all. He added, I believe that it will be so. Looking back on Maidan and the role it played in the development of Ukrainian politics and society, we spoke to novelist and participant of Maidan, Victoria Amelina. Here's our conversation. 
Uh, hi, everyone, and thanks for having me. And you don't have to apologize since clearly the news on the weapons supplies and news from the front line in Ukraine are the most important thing right now for us. Uh, before the full-scale invasion, I used to be a novelist, an essayist, so a Ukrainian writer. I also used to, to organize a literary festival in the Donetsk region. Uh, uh, the festival was uh, called New York Literature Festival, as there is a small town called New York uh, in the Donetsk region. Uh, and it's still uh, controlled by uh, Ukraine and I think will be. Though so it, of course, all changed uh, on February 24th, uh, 2022. Uh, and I no longer write fiction because the reality is uh, so intense and symbolic that uh, fiction seems sim senseless to all of us here. Uh, so right now I work as a war crimes researcher and also write non-fiction about people uh, who, together with me, document uh, uh, war crimes uh, uh, in Ukraine. Well, thanks, Victoria. Just before we talk about Maidan, um, could you just tell us a little bit about your life in the past few weeks? We know that the temperature has dropped across Ukraine, uh, and we mentioned the strikes on infrastructure at the beginning of this podcast. How has it affected you, and how, how are you dealing with it? Oh, well, I live uh, in Kiev. Uh, I was planning a beautiful life uh, in a um, a tall building uh, in the downtown Kiev. It has more than 25 floors. So as you can imagine, it's not very convenient uh, to get to my apartment when uh, there's no electricity and elevators uh, don't work. Um, there's, there's also no uh, water and uh, heating uh, due to power outages. Uh, so it was uh, quite tough, but it's uh, important to, to have friends always, especially at times of war. Uh, so when there are power outages, uh, I can go to my friends' apartments and, um, and so we manage uh, to, to survive like that. Uh, but of course, I'm really worried if there will be a total blackout, because uh, in that case, uh, my apartment on one of the top floors uh, uh, won't be uh, livable. I mean, I still have nice views uh, that I dreamt about. But other than that, of course, in winter, you cannot survive on the 20th floor. Victoria, would you take us back to Maidan? It was the anniversary yesterday. What were you doing then? And what was the political scene like in, in Kiev? Um, you know, uh, before the Euromaidan protests started, uh, we were quite a disappointed generation. I mean, I was born uh, in uh, 1986, so I'm a, a Chernobyl generation, so to say. Uh, and we were disappointed uh, because after the revolution of 2004, the so-called Orange Revolution, changes didn't really come. The presidency of Viktor Yushchenko was quite bleak. Uh, and this led to uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, a gangster-like, or actually he was a gangster, uh, president to uh, come to power. So we were really disappointed by that. Uh, still, uh, we um, uh, did live uh, normally. I mean, if you were a journalist or an activist, you could be targeted by the government. Uh, but ordinary people felt secure and had hopes for uh, um, slow but uh, a steady European integration. Uh, that is why, um, of course, when uh, government suddenly decided not to sign the trade agreement with the European Union, uh, it sparked uh, protests uh, immediately. But uh, those protests wouldn't uh, become a great deal unless uh, Yanukovych uh, and his accomplices not decided to beat up students on Maidan. 
Um, I wasn't joining students uh, at, at the initial protests, but I was in Kyiv immediately after uh, the students uh, were beaten by the police, brutally beaten by the police. And this was an important moment for Ukraine because everyone who uh, was coming to the streets uh, that day didn't know if uh, he or she would be joined by others. And we've already seen uh, those, you know, blood on the faces of uh, young students, and we knew that anything could happen. Uh, but still, uh, you know, that uh, uh, several hundred thousand people showed up to protest against police brutality. And so uh, these protests for uh, um, going into Euro European uh, direction uh, came to be just protests uh, for human rights, rule of law and dignity. Um, so it was very important for me as well. Uh, I used to be a working mom back then. I had a two-year-old child, so I couldn't be on Maidan all the time. I also had to work, uh, but uh, I came often and uh, um, Maidan managed to create kind of parallel society in Ukraine. We had everything there, library, uh, university. Uh, it was full of uh, all kinds of art activities. I was beginning uh, to write at the time and my poems uh, were printed out and uh, hanged on the walls uh, uh, of the Kiev administration. Um, and uh, I think uh, back then we realized that we have each other, we can trust each other and that we would be able to uh, build the country that we were dreaming about. Just very quickly on that, you mentioned a library and a university. Could you talk us through that? What what does that mean? What, what did you what did you see on the streets? What were people doing? Uh, there were, for example, lectures. Uh, so, of course, uh, uh, students uh, started all this uh, revolution, and uh, uh, their lecturers uh, from professors from the universities, of course, all supported uh, Maidan. Uh, so, there were actual actual uh, lectures uh, for the protesters. You could, you know, not just wander around, uh, but also join and uh, listen to a lecture. You could uh, take a book because, uh, of course, the core of uh, protesters were people people from Kyiv, but people also came from different places. So if they would need a book to read before going to sleep, uh, they could borrow a book. Um, so uh, we had kitchens. So I mean, all the processes you would uh, have on the state level, they were present uh, uh, on Maidan and they were all done, you know, voluntarily. And uh, this is why it was so uh, unique and warm. Victoria, you wrote your first novel about Euromaidan. What what happens in it? What and what inspired you to write it? Basically, my novel isn't so uh, you know uh, uplifting as I'm now talking about Maidan because uh, uh, I wrote it after seeing how people reacted to a movie about the Arab Spring shown on Maidan. Um, somehow, uh, maybe because I'm a writer, even when uh, there were those happy days when we mostly, you know, concentrated on creativity uh, parts of protest, I realized that uh, this doesn't work and uh, government uh, won't pick up and we won't pick up, so this might end up uh, with violence. 
but uh, when the uh, city about uh, um, Arab Spring was shown, um, some Ukrainians uh, uh, told that, uh, oh, this we wouldn't end up with such a violence because we are Europeans, we are different. Uh, uh, they are good guys there, but they are somehow so emotional. Um, so not everyone understood that basically we are all human and Arab Spring uh, could have been just like us, but uh, uh, they had different situations. And at that uh, time I realized that I have to write about uh, uh, a person who uh, first lives through the Arab Spring uh, and knows uh, how it is from, from the inside, and then uh, is really skeptical about joining the protests uh, in uh, his uh, country, in Ukraine. Uh, but eventually does join. Uh, so I was uh, kind of connecting both those moments. And of course, uh, my novel, which is called Fall Syndrome, is uh, also about growing up. Uh, the protagonist... Uh, um, Lawrence uh, to to understand others, both uh, uh, people who are really far away, like the protesters uh, of the Arab Spring, and uh, people next to him. He learns how to trust his fellow Ukrainians. I've got a, quite a big, well, two big questions for you, Victoria. Um, how do you think Euromaidan changed Ukrainian society, and and also how did it change you? Well, it changed me, and I will talk about that because I think this was uh, quite uh, uh, similar for all of us. It gave me a chance to reflect uh, on my own family history and my identity. Uh, I grew up uh, in the western part of uh, Ukraine, in Lviv, uh, but uh, I grew up speaking Russian, surrounded by all things Russian, and uh, thinking that somehow, uh, well, being Ukrainian is nice, but this is something, you know... Um, not 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 important and uh, ukrainians were always depicted as someone uh, funny in uh, russian movies russian literature uh, so we didn't think about uh, ourselves uh, as of uh, people capable of uh, achieving something of uh, being strong um, and power uh, powerful uh, and suddenly uh we were successful at Maidan. Suddenly we saw each other and we were proud of uh, each other and we took responsibility for our country. So it was a moment when I realized that, for example, my grandfathers were speaking Ukrainian, but somehow I speak Russian and I decided to switch to speaking Ukrainian. Um, but although it wasn't about, about ethnicity, of course, I mean, one of my grandmothers is Russian, but uh, it was about realizing that we are Ukraine and who we are and that we uh, have each other and thus can, can build a country together. Just sort of connected to that, I've just got two more questions before. And I know Dom and Francis are also listening and might have a few as well, but looking forward from 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 Maidan what would you want our listeners to understand from your perspective about Ukraine's political journey you know from from Maidan to, to 2022 how has it changed i think uh, we are going back home you mean i mean the first uh, slogan of Maidan was uh, very simple ukraine is europe uh and we didn't mean uh, you know the um uh, level of uh, uh, life or something we we meant values 
and I think Ukraine is the only country where people died for, for uh, the flags of European Union. And it meant something uh, really huge for us. And it doesn't matter even that uh, the UK is not currently in the European Union, because we meant uh, Europe, which include this, uh, you know, common space and means to us dialogue, rule of law, human rights, things like that. And uh, Ukraine is all about that right now. Uh, perhaps we were quite naive before. Um, in the 90s, uh, when the um, Soviet Union collapsed, we uh, expected that uh, instantly our life would be like uh, in the Western movies. Uh, I'm, I mean, uh, uh, like we would uh, have a better, uh, better way of life. But of course, uh, this didn't happen. Uh, and... Uh, Mm, we didn't realize why, but uh, finally we got to this level where we realized that values are important, and if our values are um, are right, if we are uh, for rule of law, human rights, dignity, uh, then this will change our lives, and th these things are uh, really important. I also like how a Yale professor, uh, Marcy Shore, uh, says that uh, before Maidan, um, there was no dignity because you could buy anything. There was this corruption, of course, which we all hated. Uh, and uh, Kant says that uh, dignity is when you cannot buy something, then this thing has dignity. Uh, and we couldn't be, you know, paid off to go away uh, from Maidan and we couldn't be paid off uh, to now give up uh, our territories and our people to Russia because we have dignity. Well, thank you, Vic Victoria. Um, yes, I mean, I'm just remembering when Dom and I were, were in Kiev in July, we, we, we did go to Maidan. It's an incredibly moving place. Um, Final final question from me, if that's all right. Um, you mentioned that you now work as a war crimes researcher. Could you just give us an idea of what that involves? What what do you do day to day? Uh, so it's not like uh, I'm on a mission uh, every day, but I'm a, a war crimes researcher working on the ground. So, for example, uh, I can go on a mission to Izum. Uh, that there would be a team of uh, six other war crimes researchers like me. Uh, we'd have a plan to, for example, explore the uh, forcible um, abductions uh, in the Izum region. Uh, and this is uh, unfortunately very easy to do because if you um, just uh, uh, get out of a car and ask a random person if uh, he or she knows about people uh, who were abducted during the Russian occupation, you will necessarily meet such a person and this person will lead you to, to many, many eyewitnesses and survivors. Uh, this way, and I'm talking actually about a, a real case this way, in Balaklia, our team uh, discovered three torture chambers during a week. Uh, which is, of course, striking because this is just a team of six people. Uh, we reported uh, those uh, findings to uh, the General Prosecutor's Office of Ukraine and uh, Ukraine's Security Service, and they were able, of course, to send a laboratory there and uh, add uh, materials that we've gathered uh, to, to, to their cases. So we are working basically as um, an adjunct uh, team uh, to Ukrainian 
Ukrainian judicial system, and we are also ready to uh, pass the testimonies uh, uh, to the international organizations like International Criminal Court uh, and others, uh, and also archives and uh, uh, sometimes media if, uh, uh, if the witness agrees to that, of course. Well, thanks for all of that, Victoria. Um, Dom and Francis, do you have any questions? I'll go first, if that's all right. Thank you very much, Victoria, for, for talking to us. Really interesting hearing your perspective on, on, obviously, a very significant event in Ukrainian history. My question is just uh, one about, I suppose, the memory of Maidan, really. I'm interested in, in the symbolic resonance of it and whether it was always this national event celebrated by the majority of Ukrainians or whether it began life as something only celebrated by a sort of liberal minority first and then its its significance became wider as time went on you know my feeling is that it was always significant uh, i mean we all understand that immediately after maidan russia annexed crimea and started its hybrid ag- aggression in uh, the donetsk and luhansk regions uh, so the memory of Maidan was uh, always in the shadow of war because war was uh, the most important uh, thing for us uh, since 2014. So we couldn't really, um, you know, concentrate on preserving memory. But um, uh, this was, you know, important for everyone I know to go to Institutska Street in Kiev, uh, to visit Maidan, to, to see where it all happened because, of course, not everyone was present uh, there in February, like I wasn't. Uh, it, it, was, uh, um, it was very important for everyone still to, you know, um, honor the memory of the uh, people killed there. We call those uh, heroes Heavenly Hundred. Uh, and uh, hundred, uh, uh, this uh, naming of the unit goes back to Cossack times. So that this is why it's heavenly hundred, not because it's exactly one hundred people. Unfortunately, there is more. Mm, uh, obviously, uh, there were people uh, who had uh, other views, who were anti-Maidan, and they would not, of course, honor the memory. Um, but. I don't know. This is this is okay. This is a society that is free, and uh, everyone can can have their views. Uh, unfortunately, of course, uh, this memory became very important also because uh, there is a war, and we need unity to win. Um, but I would say that majority of Ukrainians uh, honor the memory of uh, Maidan heroes. Well, that was going to be my next question. Actually, is 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 how has the war changed perceptions of Maidan. How has Maidan been seen in the context of the invasion back in February or perhaps, you know, even even earlier than that with the annexation of Crimea? Um, you, you see, uh, we just realized that Russia used this moment when uh, when Ukraine was weak uh, and uh, uh, behaved like, you know, a looter who, who tries to steal something while uh, the master of the house uh, is, is wounded. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, unfortunately, what was lost definitely is the part I was talking about. Uh, because, you know, before uh, this interview, I was thinking that I should tell you about this library, university art, because, uh, of course, it all ended up with uh, those shootings uh, in the main square of Kiev. Uh, it, end- it 
this ended up with tragedy and then the war started. But in the beginning, uh, this was all about solidarity and feeling so, feeling so warm and together. And it helped a lot uh, to build such a vibrant civil society in Ukraine that we have now. And I think uh, uh, it's uh, quite a phenomenon. Um, so uh, I think this is the missing part. And uh, basically, I'm even glad that uh, I uh, wrote and dared to publish my uh a fall syndrome novel uh, in 2013, I, I mean, immediately after the revolution, uh, because I, I wouldn't be able to write about uh, the revolution of dignity in the same way now. Um, because, of course, we, we are all much more saddened and I wouldn't catch, you know, this vibe of uh, coming together um, and uh, believing, you know, we, we were desperate. I mean, I realized that there wouldn't be an instant wonder uh, that we wouldn't be in uh, European Union tomorrow for sure. I mean, we, I wasn't naive, but still uh, to despite everything, risk your life and uh, try to change uh, and, and have dignity to, to strive for a change. This was really important. And I'm, I'm really happy that uh, I'm, I lived through that. I've, I've been witness to that. And uh, my friends uh, uh, are those who even fought at Khrushchevsko Street. So um, this is very important. Just one final question from me, and I know that Don will have a, a question or two as well. This is just related, you talked about your novel there, and I'm just very interested in your perspective on the present state of Ukrainian culture following the invasion and what you expect to see from Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian culture after the war. You know, we were always caught uh, in this trap of explaining ourselves. Uh, Ukraine uh, was uh, a blind spot on the mental map of Europe and world for a long time. So we always had to explain too much about uh, ourselves instead of writing about, you know, general global issues. Uh, and I would like Ukrainian literature to stop being provincial in a sense that we should not only define ourselves in our novels. We should, you know, write about, uh, define <laughs> define the world, not just ourselves. But this also means that uh, the world should also view us, uh, um, you know, um, as equals. Uh, that um, I would really love that uh, you'd like to, to hear us not only when we speak about war and Ukraine, uh, but also about, I don't know, uh, climate change or uh, other things that concern every one of us. So I really would like us to just become, you know, integral parts of Europe and free world in cultural sense as well. Well, thank you, Francis, for your question. And thank you very much, Victoria, for your answer. Dom, can I ask, is there anything from you or shall we uh, go to our final thoughts? Uh, just one quickie, if I may. And Victoria, lovely to, to have you on. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, ten years, nearly 10 years on from, from Maidan, a lot of the people fighting today were children back then or very, very young um, and maybe not not aware of the political um, context they were they were growing up in. So I'd just be really interested in your thoughts on, so where is the spirit of Maidan today? How do you keep that going? And is it wise for any politician or of any, from any party of any colour um, to try and claim the spirit of Maidan? Or, or is that the surefire way to, to upset the vibrant civil society you described? Thank you. 
<laughs> you know, finally, I'm uh, right now at my friend's place because uh, I didn't have uh, uh, hot water, so I moved uh, to her apartment today. She's uh, just uh, 24, so she was uh, essentially a kid uh, when Maidan happened. Uh, and right now, she's a leading figure in uh, culture management in Ukraine, and uh, she, she's just one of many examples of uh, people for whom uh, Maidan was, you know, a major event that happened during their childhood uh, and you don't have to even explain to them because they were all following Maidan. Uh, it's worth uh, saying that uh, even you were not uh, when you were not in Kiev, so in the center of events, uh, when you walked out to the streets, you could hear like when the windows are opened, uh, you hear uh, the sound not from the TV even, but from the internet translations, you know, from, from all the streams people are, are listening to. And of course, the stream is one for, for I mean, from the most popular uh, uh, channels. Uh, so you can go and hear. So uh, people just were uh, watching and following. And I think for, for the kids, uh, it's uh, even more, you know, magical because to them, this was a place and struggle which they couldn't join, uh, but which they admired. Well, thank you, Dom. Thank you, Francis, for your questions. And thank you, Victoria, so much for uh, your answers. We're coming to the end of our time uh, together today, unfortunately. Um, so can I just ask all of you for your final thoughts? Uh, Victoria, will ask you to go as, as our guest. Please go. Please, you can have the very final one. So Dom and Francis, would you like to go first? Sure, I can kick off there. I think as we see the the the, the impact of the the attacks on civil infrastructure, we can see what's happening in in across Ukraine in Kiev. Now the snow is arriving. Now is the the, the time really to look to our uh, political leaders and see what they are doing and stepping up. Not only in terms of the weapon supplies, but also in terms of the in terms of money, which was helpful, but in terms of uh, assistance to that to that national infrastructure so so we need to to keep our eye out and 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 question if it's not there a regular drumbeat of reconstruction and uh, and support for ukraine because it's uh, it's starting to really bite now francis Denley. just listening to victoria talk about democracy and, and literature i was reminded of an incident that took place on the train when i was away last week there were a couple of younger people than me lamenting the state of the world. They were talking about the housing crisis, climate change, economics, and they were sort of in despair, really. I think that's the only way I can describe it. They were talking about how, you know, democracy can't solve this. And I, I really saw in that moment that sort of the, that feeling, that thirst for clarity in these in these challenging times, in this sort of age of confusion and divided narratives. And it's as if the world has become so sort of large and incalculably complex for a, a single mind to fathom. Them, that we, we crave somebody now or a system that can make sense of it, that can, can offer easy answers to very complicated problems. And it's, it almost sometimes I think feels that, that impossible for democracy to untangle all of these issues. And it just really struck me really that, that from what they were saying, you know, it's not m too much of a leap to say, oh, yes, you know, I'd vote for some great figure, you know, some benevolent dictator who's willing to discard all the norms of democracy in order to get things done and to solve all of these problems. And I just thought I would respond to this, you know, in, after the effect, after listening to them, um, because I think it's really, really important to, to make the point that even if you had the most benevolent dictator in the world, that... The very notion of having one, I would argue, is is immoral from the get-go 
because you're eroding the very foundation principles of democracy and you're opening the, the door for one less benevolent in the future. You know, to hunger for any sort of easy solutions and dictatorial power, I would argue, is, is a sin in and of itself. And talking about literature, there's, there's a wonderful scene that really resonates with me in Les Miserables, the novel, not the musical, uh, when there's a group of young, idealistic revolutionaries who are gathered together. And one of them launches into this monologue about how progressive Napoleon was. He talks about how he made all of these profound reforms, transformed society, made France great again, all of this sort of stuff. And then one of them says and ends, you know, what could be greater than this? And the student replies, or one of them, very simply and says, to be free. And that's the lesson, I think, is that we should never be tempted to sell out our freedoms for simple solutions. That those who, who take democracy for granted uh, are often really don't deserve it at all. And, and I think that what we're seeing in Ukraine, as I've said many times before, is people who do really value the essence of democracy. It's been fought for and is being fought for now. And they know its value in a way that perhaps many people in the West take for granted. Thank you, Dom, and thank you, Francis, for that. Victoria, thank you so much for all your time. Would you like the final thoughts today? I would very much agree that uh, democracy is precious and unique uh, and we shouldn't take it for granted. Uh, And I'd repeat again that Ukraine was such a blind spot for most of you, unfortunately. And now you see see us, but you mostly see us in a struggle. But we're not only about war, we are about art, science, IT startups, having fun. So in a nutshell, life. And thank you so much for all your support for for the weapons. We mainly need weapons, as you know. Uh, But uh, after the victory, I really invite you to um, to do all other things with us, like IT startups, science, read us, listen to us, and uh, everything uh, like that. Thank you so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Jaden Irving. <laughs>